Thanks to the Felter crew, out of the ordinary. I've not forgotten. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, Lizzie said thank y'all for, for bearing with us even though we're out of the ordinary. And I was like, ooh, that's a good band name right there. We'll make some money with that. Man, I'm excited to, uh, to be with you guys today. Craig, um, really appreciate your testimony this morning. Man, last week, um, if you were not here, we, we looked at a, a passage of Scripture that's, that's pretty familiar to us. Oh, no. Um, by the way, before I forget, if you'd like a copy, we have a few copies of the outline of the message today, if that's helpful to you. Michelle has made a new um, uh, notice board that's on the back wall right here on the other side. If you'd like a copy of that, you can go run back there and get one of those. But last week we talked about um, a passage in, in Hebrews, end of chapter 5, beginning of verse 6. One that we're, we're probably all familiar with where uh, the author of Hebrews challenges people who uh, find themselves still drinking spiritual milk who ought to be eating spiritual meat. Um, and we talked about how there is a progression of, of faith that happens in our lives as we walk in obedience to the Lord, that we're learning more about who He is, and that's changing us from the inside out. And that, that spiritual milk are the basic foundational truths of our faith, and then the meat is the more heavy things. And I appreciate Craig's testimony this morning and sharing with us how he's grown in his life over the last year. I know that uh, he wasn't, you know, in his mind trying to manipulate his life experiences to, to come to that. It just happened. To, he didn't want that Monday, but it was there, and the Lord used that to, to reveal to him the growth that's happened in his life. And so I appreciate that testimony this morning. So last week we looked at a couple of things, and I want to bring these back out because it's significant that the author says them where he says them in the book. So last week we asked the question, are you drinking milk when you should be eating meat? And we acknowledge that there's different stages in our spiritual lives that we go through, and it should be progressive. We should be growing in the Lord, and it doesn't matter where you find yourself in that spectrum. If you're a new believer, you ought to be drinking milk. Or if you've been a believer for a really long time, you ought to be eating meat. And then there's all those variations in between that we can find ourselves in. And it's good to be where you are. God meets you there. But the goal for all of us is to continue in growing in the Lord, okay? Um, the second thing we asked is, are you willing to follow God's lead into a deeper understanding of who he is and then obey what he asks you to do as you discover who he is? And we talked about how a common struggle in the church that the author is writing to and in churches today, including sometimes our own, is that we become negligent of our faith. We get comfortable in where we are. And that's what the author is, is really calling out, is don't get negligent of your faith. That it is important that we continue to grow. That's who God has called us to be as a people that are progressively knowing him more and more. And the author is exhorting the church to make their relationship with God the main priority in their life for their sake and for the sake of their community. The goal of the church is to know God and then to share what we learn about him with the people around us. But we got to know God first. And we're going we're gonna to address that a little bit today. I wanted us to go through all of that because as I mentioned last week, there's a significant tone change in the middle of this book. It goes from very encouraging to some very harsh language. We're going to have some more of that harsh language today. And we're going we're gonna to walk through that and discover what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to the church. Because the passage today, I think, is one that often causes a lot of um, friction in the church, we will say. There's a lot of different views on what the author's trying to say, and we're going we're gonna to look at a lot of those, some common ones today. And so here's what I'm asking of you. I need you to stay plugged in today. If, you take, if you're a note taker, get something out to take notes on. Um, the outlines in the Faith Life app, if that helps you. Because here's what I don't want to happen today. We're going to look at some varying views on what this passage is saying. And what I don't want to happen is for you to misunderstand what God is saying, or I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, okay? And the only way that happens is if we all stay plugged in. Are we ready for that? 
Okay, remember the author is getting our attention. He's getting the church's attention because we're fixing to dump, jump into, su- into some pretty heavy theology. Okay, I titled today's message, Clearing Up the Muddy Water. Okay, y'all heard that, that saying before, clear as mud? Okay, I think for me, a lot of my life, this passage was clear as mud. And my hope for us today is that as we look at some different views on this passage, that things will begin to clear up in our minds of what the author of Hebrews is trying to say and what that means for us as believers. Okay, so let's jump into our text today. Um, We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8. And we're going to read through this and we're going to talk about it a whole lot. I'm going to give you, today may feel a little bit more like a lecture um, because we've got six points or six views that we're going to look at. So just stay plugged in with me. Let's read the passage and we'll go from there. The author says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end will be burned." Okay, so the, the technical term for what we're going to talk about today, and depending on what variation of Scripture or what a translation you're reading, the technical term for what we're talking about today is apostasy, okay? And simply that just means um, abandonment or defection from your religious beliefs. And so I, I, want, I want to ask you a question as we begin today, because here's where my mind goes immediately, is how often have, have you had somebody ask you or have you wondered yourself if it's possible for you to lose your salvation? Because on reading this passage, and I've heard it taught this way before, is that if you don't do the right things, that you can lose your salvation. And so today we, we want to talk about that, okay? And I have some, some very particular beliefs about that, and everybody just relax. We're probably all going to be on the same page. But that's why I want your attention today, because people have used this passage in a lot of different ways. And so we want to look at what those are today, and then see what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. I was telling somebody a couple of weeks ago, um, I remember vividly, I was, I don't remember my age, but the pictures are in my mind. I, I, I think I was about 11 or 12 because I remember I was driving a tractor later that afternoon. So that's about the age that that began for me. I know I can't imagine my 12-year-olds on a tractor, but that's for a, a, another story for another day. But I remember sitting on church on a Sunday night. I was sitting next to Eddie. Some of you guys have met Eddie before. Eddie is my redheaded cousin. It's about twice my size, but we were born seven days apart. And I, I jokingly, but it's kind of serious too, say that he's my partner in crime. Um, and Eddie and I were like most 12-year-old boys in church. We did a lot of this and poking each other. And, and I remember on a Sunday night, our pastor sharing uh, the gospel, talking about salvation. And I remember that hitting me in a different way. I'd heard that message before, but it felt different. And I bumped Eddie and was like, hey, we need to go down there and talk to the preacher about this. And he's like, uh-uh, man, I'm not getting up. I was like, no, dude, this is important. He's like, I'm not getting in trouble. I'm like, okay, but for me, in my heart, I felt like it might be worth whatever trouble I might get in, which tells you a little about, about me if I was worried about getting in trouble. That tells you what kind of kid I was. So I went down and I talked with the pastor, um, and, and I gave my life to the Lord. As in the Baptist church, we call that walking the aisle. I walked down the aisle, had a conversation with the pastor, prayed to receive Christ. I remember talking with my parents about it later that evening because I was out riding the tractor, and they came out and got me off the tractor so we could talk about it. 
Fast forward several years, um, and I'm at a youth rally at Bringhurst Ballpark. I don't know if any of you guys know where that is. We used to have a minor league baseball team here. And they were having a youth rally there, and there was a speaker, an evangelist that had come in, and he's talking about salvation. And I remember in that moment being very conflicted in my, in my inner being, if you will. Because I had this, this experience where I'd given my life to the Lord, and I was confident in that, but based on the things that the speaker was saying, talking about the sin that exists in us and I'm looking at my own life and still seeing sin in my life even after salvation it made me wonder am I really saved and I share that story today because I know I'm probably not the only person I know I'm not the only person who struggled with that I've had conversations with people and at first glance this text when we read it it seems to suggest that maybe that's possible and so last week we talked about those foundational truths of our faith and this is one of those is what does it mean for us to be saved and is that something that we can lose well today I want to share with you some different viewpoints on that passage and then the last one is the one that I find myself agreeing with and and we're going to look at some scripture to that end okay but our goal for today is to answer that question can you lose your salvation and then after we answered that to try to figure out what the author of, of Hebrews is trying to communicate to the church what is his goal okay while a lot of commentators disagree on what the author is trying to communicate, what they all agree on is the fact that he's being pretty amb ambiguous, very vague, right? He's not being real clear or specific with the word that he's using. To that end, we're going to cover some common viewpoints. I think that's the fairest way to do this. It's not for me to pick and choose what information I want to share with you, but to give you the information and let you and the Holy Spirit have some dialogue and see where you land together. So the six views, let's go through those one real quick. The first is a hypothetical view, which suggests that the author crafts this harsh warning for rhetorical, rhetorical impact to blast the hearers out of their spiritual slumber, but the state that he's describing cannot really happen. So that's one viewpoint, that he's just making up this story to kind of shake people in their seats to get their attention. The second is pre-conversion Jew view, which states that those addressed were Jews who have associated somewhat with Christian community, but have not yet made a commitment to Christ. The third is the covenant community view set forth by Vernal Verbrugge, uh, who suggests that the Vineyard Song, and we're going to look at this a little bit later, from Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, forms the backdrop for this passage, and that the author has in mind of God's whole rejection of this community or this church, rather than individuals. The fourth is the true believer under judgment view. This position holds that those threatened by judgment of God indeed are true believers and do face severe judgment by God, but cannot lose their salvation. The fifth one is the, all right, I'm going to do my best. I've been practicing this all day already. The phenomenological, uh-huh, see there, true believer view. This interpretation holds that those under consideration must be judged as having been true, regenerate believers who have now lost their relationship with Christ and can no longer accept salvation upon Christ's return. And then the sixth is the phenomenological unbeliever view that proposes that the fallen in Hebrews may have seemed to be genuine Christians as they participated in the community of true believers, but in fact, by their faith, uh, by their rejection of Christ, they've shown themselves to lack genuine faith. Okay, and I, I want to, if this is not already clear, I did not come up with these, okay? Some people that are a lot smarter and spent a lot more time researching this passage are the ones that came up with these ideas. But this last suggestion for me, as I read this book, <clears throat> as I think about what I've read in other scriptures, this is the one that, that gains the most traction in my mind. 
When we consider in reference to God's character as revealed in Scripture, this makes the most sense. And it may sound a bit subjective, but consider that the author is being very vague. And so we have to depend on other passages that are referenced here to kind of help us define what he's saying. For example, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. It says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. See, salvation is something that we choose, but the work is done by the Holy Spirit. We're saved by grace through faith, not through our works, not through things that we do. So to me, the answer to that question, can you lose your salvation, is absolutely no. You cannot lose your salvation. We can't undo what God has done. Look at Romans 11, verse 6. It says, now if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. We are saved by grace, not by anything that we do. The saving is God's work, not ours. And if, and if we're not the ones doing the work, then we also cannot undo the work. We are not as powerful or as big as God, and we hold no power over him. And so we cannot undo what God has done. Consider 2 Timothy um, verse, chapter 1, verse 9. It says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. You see, we talk about this all the time, that Jesus did what we cannot do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life. He became the sacrifice, the final sacrifice. Remember all the time we've talked about Jesus being the perfect high priest prior to this point in the book. The author has made the case that, that we are sinners, but Jesus was not. And he was the perfect high priest because he was not a sinner. He doesn't have to make atonement for his sins because there are none. He only makes atonement for ours. He lived a perfect sin-free life and he gave himself as the final sacrifice, the only sacrifice that is necessary for our sins. Humans have never been able to be perfect and to reason that a series of sins after salvation can somehow change how God feels about you is to say that God himself changes. You see what God believes about you and I when he looks at us as believers he sees the blood of Jesus he sees his sacrifice and if by our own works we could in any way change that we are saying that what God is saying is not true we are saying that what Jesus did was not enough and we're going to address that a little bit more in a minute so if salvation can't be lost what's the author talking about I believe he's talking specifically about those who participated in the congregation played the roles, said the right things, yet had not actually accepted salvation provided them through Christ's death on the cross. When I shared my story earlier, my struggle was with the fruit that I saw in my own life. I'd given my life to Christ, but when that evangelist is talking to me, and I don't remember exactly the things that he said, but I remember how I felt in my heart. I felt dirty. I felt shameful. I felt as if I wasn't good enough. You know, we just sang about that in that song, Simple Gospel. I don't know if y'all are putting those pieces together or not. But I felt like I had not done enough in order to earn God's love. Looking at the evidence alone caused me to question the validity of, of my salvation. And I'm not sure if that was this, this speaker's intent or not, but Satan certainly used that to try to confuse and frustrate me. And it worked for a while, but in talking about it with God and talking about it with my youth pastor and praying through that, it became clear to me that, that it was him, it was his work that saved me. It was not mine. I didn't do anything. God did that for me. And I can't undo that. 
And I want to be clear about this today because I don't want anybody confused. So everybody still with me? Y'all hanging in there? Okay. All of, our, uh, all of us struggle with sin. And while those struggles will, never, will, will change over the course of our lives, that doesn't define us. If we are a believer of Christ, if we are in a relationship with him, that's what defines us. By entering into that relationship, that is who we become. Our identity changes. We are a new creation. This same kind of confusion is not unique to me or to anyone else. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia about this very idea. There was someone who had come in after Paul had gone in and established this church and began to preach that you had to, to you, grace was necessary, but then you had to work on top of that. And so Paul addresses that specifically and says that that's not the case. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? In the same way that we can't earn our salvation by work, we also cannot lose it by work. Paul is, is saying to the church in Galatia, you were given this gift by God because of what Jesus did. And you can't undo that. You can't take away from that. This is why I find this particular unbeliever view to hold the most merit. The struggle that the author of Hebrews is addressing is not of someone that has uh, that has come to know Jesus by faith, but rather someone who has not yet truly believed. They've learned the lingo. They've learned how to walk the walk or talk the talk, as we say. But they don't really know Jesus. And I think it's worth saying at this point that, that I or nobody else in this room can be a judge of your relationship with God. And that's not my intent today. Just like last week, I think this is the author calling us to self-reflect and to ask ourselves, if I look at my life, what does it say about who I am? Not the works, but the relationship. So let's look at these verses 4 and 6 again in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. Here's what I think he's saying. Because at the beginning of that, he says, it is impossible. And if you go look at that word impossible, you know what it means? Impossible. Imagine that. That's the only thing it can mean. We see that used in Scripture in several other ways, and it's always used the same way. Impossible. I want you to think about the Pharisees for just a minute. Okay? They saw Jesus. They spoke with him. They witnessed his miracles. They saw the power of his word in people's lives. And yet they chose to crucify him in order to preserve their status and their lifestyle. So when the author of Hebrews is addressing this issue in the church, I believe that it's possible that he's addressing people who were just like the Pharisees, who saw the work of God. They experienced it vicariously through the people around them. Yet, in order to preserve their own status, their own lifestyle, they chose not to become a follower of Christ so that they could live the way that they wanted to live. Having done all that, they are crucifying Christ again, just like the Pharisees did. They're saying that what Jesus did was not what he said he did. And they're putting him back on the cross. They're crucifying him for the sake of them being able to live in their own accord to live they want, the way they want to live. The author's telling the church that if seeing the work of God does not change someone's heart, then it's not possible for anything to change their heart. 
when he says it is impossible, he's saying that if the work of Jesus Christ, if his life, his death, the testimony of the Holy Spirit are not enough to change someone's heart, nothing can. He then closes with this thought with words that would have undoubtedly, we've talked about this before, how the author will call out, he'll make comments about things, and immediately it brings people's minds to a particular story, to a particular place. He closes out in verse 7 and 8 with these words. He says, For the ground that drinks the rain, that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation, useful for those whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and about to be cursed, and at the end will be burned. These verses 7 and 8 are not a threat. They are simply speaking the reality that we all face. Your mind may have already gone to the parable of the sower, right? But let's look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Remember, all the people in the church heard, saw, and experienced the same thing. And they're both going to reap the rewards of their decisions. And that's what Isaiah is referencing here, is, is Israel and their choice in how they responded to God. Read this with me. Isaiah 5, verse 1 through 7. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I loved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What, could I, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I tell you, what I'm about to do to my vineyard, I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make a wasteland. If it had not been pruned or weeded, thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds uh, that the rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but he saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. You see the imagery there? Both groups, those who chose to believe and those who did not choose to believe, got the same thing. God set it all up for them. I was thinking about this morning, I meant to take a picture and show it to you guys, but um, y'all know that my family historically um, has had big gardens. We love to garden. They're a lot of fun. The kids love it. We eat the stuff out of the garden. It's a great, it's a great process. But due to um, treatments and just new responsibilities our family's taken on and several other factors, we knew that this year we didn't have time for a garden. And so we chose to not plant one. In fact, instead of planting a garden, we put a gazebo where the garden used to be. Um, but someone that we love, someone's in our life, was insistent that they were going to give us some plants. And so they did. But because of how busy our lives were, those plants sat in the little containers that they came in for a couple of weeks. And you may not know this, but they're not designed to stay in those for very long. Those are just, you know, they grow them from a seed in that. And then the intent is once they get about that tall, you put them in the ground. Well, ours, that didn't happen. They sat out in the sun. We watered them. But then they were about this tall in this little bitty pot of dirt. And if you know anything about gardening, you know that that plant is now stunted and it's not going to do well. But we went ahead and put them in the ground because we felt guilty about it. You know, somebody gave us these plants. We got to do it. 
and they never did really grow well. We, you know, got some fat, odd-shaped little cucumbers. We've gotten a few tomatoes, most of them rotted on the vine. And you can't even hardly see the plants because there's so much grass up in between them. And if you wanted to weed them, even if you did, all, I see some people laughing. Y'all got some gardens like that? If you, if you try to pull the weeds out, they're going to uproot the plant that you're trying to save. And so what, how do you fix that? You don't. You tear the whole thing out and you have to start over again. I share that story because this is, that's the kind of sentiment that, the author, that Isaiah, that God is speaking through him. God didn't treat his garden like I treated my garden, right? God did everything right. And the garden had every opportunity to grow and it didn't. It says the men of Israel and men of Judah chose not to do what God called them to do. We, saw, we see that every time we look back at the, at the Old Testament. And if we're honest, we see that every time we look back in our own lives. The author of Hebrews is calling to the church. and He's been encouraging them. He's saying, church, each of you need to examine your lives. And you need to ask the question, are you a true believer? Do you really know God? Or are you just pretending that you do? Because what happens when we have people amongst us that are just pretending is that they are living for themselves. They're saying what they think people want to hear. They're doing the things that they think people want them to do in order to, to um, manipulate a lifestyle that is pleasing to themselves. And their motivations are wrapped around that, not wrapped around walking in obedience to the Lord. In this text, we see a harsh reminder. We see some harsh words. But they're good for the church, and they're good for our church. Israel chose not to be the people that, call, that God called them to be and the author is reminding the church of what happens when we refuse to do what God tells us to do God's provided a way to restore the broken relationship Jesus died so that we could be brought back into that relationship that was destroyed when Adam and Eve chose to sin Jesus was the answer for that the fix for that true believers are going to have fruit produced through them by the Holy Spirit we talk about that when we go through the biting cycle all the time when we look at our own lives, if we see any fruit at all, it's not us that's doing it. As we're talking about this, as we're thinking about fruit, I, I want to say again and again and again that it's not us that's doing it. It is the result of a relationship with Jesus. And so if you look at your life and the fruit that you see is out of effort of things that you have done, not what Jesus has done, that could be an indicator of where you need to be or what you need to think about. If there's no fruit in your life, it's because there's no spirit there. So what's our application for this passage? I think for all of us, if we're unsure about where we stand in our relationship with God, we need to ask Him. Say, God, I'm confused. I'm not sure what's going on. Ask Him. Let Him reveal what's going on in your life. Have a conversation with God. And if you're still unsure, loop in somebody that you trust and somebody that you know that knows God, that has a relationship with Him. And let them walk through that with you and figure that out together. What we see if we consider the context of what the author is telling the church today is that he is, he's protecting the church. He's weeding out those that are pretending to believers. And I can tell you in my own life, I've had many experiences with people that I think fit that category. And I think probably the same is true for you guys too. If I think back on, on previous churches that I've worked at, that I've attended, 
and I see the turmoil that's going there, often it's because people are motivated by what they want and not walking in obedience to the Lord. Thankfully, we haven't had that. We don't have that problem here. And this is why. It's because the people that are here are, are focused on obeying God, to walking in the Spirit and letting the fruit in their lives be the work of the Spirit and not of their own hands. So today, we're going to wrap up. But if you're here today and you aren't sure where you stand with God, I want to invite you to come and speak with me. You can do it right here in the service, or we can talk afterwards, or we can meet later in the week for coffee. If today you've, you've heard the, and the Lord has spoken to you and He's inviting you to take that step of faith and trust in Him for the first time, and give your life to Him, there's no better time than right now today. We're going to sing another song in just a minute. Alex and Lizzie are going to come up. And if you feel like the Lord's tugging on your heart and you'd like to talk to me about it, I'm going to come sit right here by myself. Feel free to come up and we can have a conversation about that. Church, there's nothing more important for us than to clear up the muddy water. For you, for yourself, in your own life, to know where you stand with the Lord. You can go ahead and come up, Alex. I'm done. I was, I was feeling time till you got here. There's no important, more important thing for you to understand where you stand with the Lord. And the goal today is not to cause confusion for you to go, oh my gosh, am I, am I saved? If you were struggling with that, let's talk about it. Because the Lord can, can help you see that very clearly, very quickly. The goal today is to look at a passage that has been historically um, trouble, or, or, or troublesome for the church. And to say, what is, what is God trying to say through this? What is the author of Hebrews trying to communicate to the church? And so I hope today you've, you've found some clarity in that. And my hope today is that you will examine your life and ask God where you stand with Him. If you'd like to talk to me, come do that. But let's pray together and then we'll worship. Father, I thank you for a challenging word for me today. God, I thank you for um, an opportunity for us to, to be in an environment like this where family can come together and look at a passage of Scripture that is maybe more difficult than ones we've looked at before. And Father, I ask that as all of us examine our hearts today, Lord, I ask that you would speak so clearly to each person in this room. God, help them to see where they stand with you, and there'd be no shadow of a doubt. Father, if they are struggling, Lord, I ask that you give them the courage, the boldness to talk to me or somebody else about that. Father, our, our desire is to know you, and to walk in obedience to you. But we got to know you first. So Father, speak into our lives. Reveal to us where we stand with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.